Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. In 1961, astronomer and astrophysicist Frank Drake wrote what we now call the Drake Equation, which says that the number of stars that might contain civilization we can communicate with is equal to the average rate of star formation in the galaxy times the fraction of stars with planets times the average number of habitable planets per star that has planets at all times the fraction of those habitable planets that actually has life times the fraction of those planets with intelligent life, times the fraction of intelligent life that develops a civilization we could communicate with through space, times the length of time said civilizations actively broadcast into space. But the Drake Equation isn't really intended to give us an answer. It was an attempt to spark serious dialogue about the question, are we alone in the universe, and account for the major variables that we might consider and used to narrow the search when pondering the question and searching the sky. Radio astronomers and groups like SETI are constantly on the lookout for those interstellar signals that might answer the question, are we alone? The most famous of those signals might be the 1977 WOW signal. And we have of course sent out many signals of our own, including very direct ones like the 1974 Arecibo message blasted towards the M13 star cluster, some 25,000 light-years away. And a direct response to the WOW signal was sent out in 2012, and it features Stephen Colbert jokingly telling any listeners that humans taste bad, they can get stuck in your teeth, and that you should visit the Crab Nebula. But so far, the search has come up empty-handed, and we get confronted with that last part of the Drake Equation. The length of time that a civilization might use radio signals we could detect which can be heartbreaking when you think someone might be there, but they just aren't listening, or they've long since disappeared. Or perhaps it's terrifying, and they've reached new heights we can only imagine, and we have no idea what they're doing in the cosmos, and they might already know that we're here. As we dwell on all the variables in the Drake Equation, 
We've stayed busy physically exploring our own cosmic backyard. From the first people to identify the planets as different from stars, to thinking Mars or Venus had advanced civilizations, to the idea that Mars might sow us someday that single-celled life existed elsewhere, if only for a brief time, or was at least technically possible. And we now know that there are a handful of moons potentially harboring a liquid water mixture in the solar system. Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto around Jupiter, Enceladus, Dione, and Rhea around Saturn, Titania and Oberon at Uranus, Triton at Neptune, and perhaps even Pluto. Not to mention other active worlds, like Saturn's moon Titan, which has a composition that is perhaps not so different from the ancient Earth. So we searched the cosmos with radio telescopes, because we suspect another civilization might be doing the same thing. And, of course, we're also searching it physically, with craft both manned and unmanned. So why is it that we get so hung up when we talk about UFOs? The UFO phenomenon is likely as old as sight, from ancient aliens' ideas about the gods of the old world to more recent events like the 1989 Belgium UFO wave, which was experienced and reported by both military and civilian witnesses, the 1997 Phoenix Lights, and the video of the Gimbal UFO, where an F-18 pilot reported a UFO over the ocean and actually chased it for a while. But they don't have to be atmospheric UFOs either. There is no shortage of reports of UFOs coming from astronauts, but no doubt many of them have explanations. But beyond that, there are more still. Tabby Star was thought to have some sort of giant alien structure around it that could actually dim the light of the star that we detect on Earth. But the current explanation is it might just be a massive dust cloud. There's no shortage of hypothesis online, and of course there's also the very recent Oumuamua object that went speeding by Earth and appears to actually be accelerating as it leaves our solar system. Oumuamua was discovered in 2017 by Robert Rarick at the Pan-STARRS telescope in Hawaii, traveling through our solar system about 21 million miles away from Earth. Oumuamua was also moving fast enough, at 87 kilometers a second, that scientists concluded that it must have come from somewhere else possibly somewhere near the Vega constellation. This attracted the attention of SETI, who quickly aimed at the object to listen in, but didn't detect anything. There still isn't a clear explanation for what Oumuamua is, though most explanations hold that it was some kind of low-density asteroid that picked up its speed from an object that could sling it around much faster than anything in our solar system, and is perhaps also being pushed further by our own sun. But the head astronomer at Harvard, A.V. Loeb, still believes it was possibly of ET origin, perhaps a defunct space probe launched many thousands of years ago by some far-off world. So this got me thinking, what about our own UFOs? We're making plenty of cosmic noise, but when we inevitably start to go silent, what physical objects of man-made origin are we leaving behind that we may forget one day, but they might be the source of some other planet's UFO lore? We only flew our first airplane in 1903, not much more than a century ago, and the first object to reach space was actually a Nazi-designed V-2 rocket in 1946 launched out of New Mexico. The first orbital craft, and source of much anxiety in the U.S., was the Soviet Union's Sputnik in 1957. Yuri Gagarin would be the first man in space in 1961. Neil Armstrong walked on the moon in 1969 which remains to this day as far as humans have ever gone. 
A handful of probes have been sent out, or even landed on specific planets or moons, where they will ultimately die, like Messenger, which crashed into the surface of Mercury in 2015, and Cassini, which plunged into Saturn in 2017, and the Opportunity rover on Mars, which stopped communicating in 2018, and not to mention a whole host of probes from earlier. But out of all the objects we've sent into the solar system, only five of them have or will leave the solar system to possibly fuel the dreams or nightmares of extraterrestrials. These interstellar wanderers are what I want to wade into in this episode. When and why they were launched, what we learned, and where they might end up someday. The first of the interstellar wanderers is Pioneer 10, which had a main antenna dish about 9 feet in diameter and weighed a total of 570 pounds. It was launched in 1972 on top of an Atlas Centaur rocket. At the time, Pioneer 10 was the fastest object launched from Earth into space, reaching an initial speed of over 32,000 miles per hour, crossing the distance between Earth and the Moon in a mere 11 hours, and making the distance of Mars in only about three months. In July of 1972, the Millennium Falcon, I mean Pioneer 10, became the first man-made object to travel through the asteroid belt, taking a few hits along the way, but still doing some useful science about the region as well. It reached Jupiter in November of 1973, where it carried out its primary mission. Pioneer 10 took hundreds of pictures of Jupiter, its famous red spot, and a few of its moons, including Europa. It also measured the radiation and the magnetic field around the planet as well and its basic composition. Around Jupiter, Pioneer 10 would reach an incredible 82,000 miles per hour before heading towards Saturn, where it flew by in 1976, and then Neptune in 1983. Pioneer 10 marked the real beginning of exploration of the outer planets, and established and proved a lot of technology, from rotating the spacecraft to aid in stabilization to deep space communication. Pioneer 10 carried 11 instruments, there was a helium vector magnetometer, which would ultimately use to measure the magnetic field of Jupiter for the very first time. A plasma analyzer, which measured solar wind. A charged particle instrument, which measured the composition of charged particles. A cosmic ray telescope, which measured the charge of the particles. A Geiger telescope, which measured proton and electron fluxes. A trapped radiation detector, which measured the radiation around Jupiter. A meteoroid detector, which consisted of 234 pressurized cells throughout the cleft, that when pierced, the pressure loss could be detected. There was also an asteroid and meteoroid astronomy telescope, which could detect slight variations in light and use them to sort of picture and measure the asteroids. An ultraviolet photometer, which was used to look for the point at which the solar wind stops being supersonic, and at Jupiter was used to look for auroras as well as the levels of hydrogen and helium in Jupiter's atmosphere. There was also the imaging photopolarimeter, which was a camera, and an infrared radiometer, which was used to look at the thermal structure and chemical composition of Jupiter. These instruments would be shared with the next interstellar wanderer, Pioneer 11, which was almost identical to its predecessor, except for an additional magnetometer. Pioneer 11 was destined to do at Saturn what Pioneer 10 had done at Jupiter. Pioneer 11 was launched in April 1973. It passed through the asteroid belt unscathed and took the first pictures of Jupiter's polar region and more pictures of Jupiter's moons than Pioneer 10 did. Afterwards, Pioneer 11 slinged around Jupiter towards Saturn, 
where it confirmed for the first time that Saturn had a magnetic field and took hundreds of photos of the ringed giant, and captured images as well as the temperature data of Saturn's moon Titan, which is still one of the most interesting spots in the solar system. Afterwards, Pioneer 11 shot into space in the opposite direction of Pioneer 10, crossed the orbit of Neptune in 1990, and headed towards the center of the Milky Way, becoming the second interstellar wanderer of earthly origin. Both Pioneer 10 and 11 are now defunct, with Pioneer 10 making its last contact in 2003 and on track to reach the star Aldebaran in about 2 million years, Aldebaran being about 67 light-years from Earth. You can look up in the night sky and see Aldebaran in the constellation Taurus. It's in what would be the head of the bull. We haven't confirmed any planets around Aldebaran, but there is evidence to suggest that there is at least one Jupiter-sized planet out there. Pioneer 11 stopped communicating in 1995, and it should reach the star Lambda Aquila about 125 light-years away in about 4 million years. That's 4 million years. We don't know if there are any planets out there, but there's a chance that it's actually a binary star. So if there is a planet, it'll have a cool sunset like Tatooine. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Pioneer 10 and 11 missions were truly pioneering. Nothing so far out had been done before. And today, we take for granted the science that was done at the time. This was our first foray into the asteroid belt and it gave us a better understanding of the radiation and solar effects we can expect in interplanetary space and around the giant planets. We learned how to work with instruments like cameras and telescopes on a rotating spacecraft, and overcome the various instrument failures or glitches that you might encounter in deep space. Pioneer 11 almost crashed into a moon at Saturn that it only managed to see the day before. NASA was also well aware that these spacecraft might survive the mission and leave the solar system, so they included a small gold plaque with the depiction of a man and a woman standing in front of the 9-foot antenna dish of the Pioneer spacecraft. And they included a map of our solar system as it was then known to us and which planet we came from. So if an alien finds it someday, maybe they'll bring it back. And it's just as well, because Pioneer 10 and 11 
were really just dress rehearsals for two even more ambitious spacecraft, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. The story of the Voyager missions, and even the Pioneer 10 and 11 missions, really starts in 1964, when Gary Flandreau, an aerospace engineer at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, discovered that we were coming up on a very rare alignment of the planets that only happens once every 175 years. We would have the chance, with the technology at the time, to send a craft around all of the outer planets in as little as a decade. This would be possible because we could use the gravity of each planet to sling the craft towards the next planet. This was incredibly important because otherwise you might be waiting a decade or more just to reach one planet. And the more time the craft has to spend in space, the more chance there is for something to go wrong in the mission to fail completely. Not to mention having to fund the mission the whole time, which was already getting harder for NASA. The Voyager program actually started as part of the Mariner program, but shifting budget and designs had it rebadged as the Voyager program before it launched. The Voyager probes each featured a 12-foot diameter main antenna for communication with Earth, and the 11 instruments carried by these probes were in a large part improved versions of the Pioneer probe's instruments, including much better cameras and better radio astronomy equipment, and the spacecraft weighed in at over 1,800 pounds, far more than the Pioneer probes. It also had the ability to record small amounts of data in case transmission to Earth was lost so that it could try to send it back later, on a really cool A-track tape. Totally 1970s. Both of the Voyager probes were launched on top of Titan III Centaur rockets, with Voyager 2 actually launching first on August 20th, 1977, followed by Voyager 1 a couple of weeks later. Voyager 2 almost failed at launch. Voyager's computers suffered from glitches, and the primary communications equipment failed entirely. They were only able to communicate with Voyager 2 with one very specific frequency. Voyager 1's launch was a lot more successful, flawless really, and it had a more direct trajectory, and it actually passed Voyager 2 in space as well. Now I've already made a couple of Star Wars references, but by this time in 1977, Star Wars had actually just came out. So the excitement for the Voyager mission amongst the space nerds must have been incredible. Voyager 1 reached Jupiter in January of 1979 and began taking pictures and measurements of the planet. Voyager 1 also managed to take very clear pictures of Jupiter's moon Io and capture a plume of an active volcano. This was the first geologically active body we had discovered in the solar system. This was where we really fleshed out the science behind the giant planets, pulling and stretching their moons causing them to heat up. Something today we see on another moon of Jupiter, called Europa, that has fascinated scientists and amateurs ever since. Voyager 1 showed us the cracked and fractured and refrozen surface of Europa, and we began to suspect an ocean. But that's not it. Callisto and Ganymede might also be harboring oceans. Many of these observations were confirmed by Voyager 2 when it arrived later. When Voyager 1 arrived at Saturn in November of 1980, we quickly focused on its moon Titan, previously photographed by Pioneer 11. Voyager was able to measure the composition of the atmosphere, and we guessed that the moon may have hydrocarbons. Titan was considered such an important target that changes to Voyager 1's trajectory meant that it would miss Uranus and Neptune. Had Voyager 1 missed, Voyager 2 would have also been sacrificed to get to Titan. That's how interested we were in Titan. And it really shouldn't be a surprise that we spent so much time and effort to get the Cassini mission to get there later. Voyager also photographed Enceladus, another moon that harbors liquid water. 
as since evidenced by images of geysers made of water and ice captured by the Hubble telescope. This was the end of Voyager 1's planetary science mission, and it was off to deep space. Voyager 2 continued on to Uranus and reached the Punny planet in January of 1986, where it discovered a host of new moons orbiting the planet, planetary rings, as well as weather patterns. In 1989, Voyager 2 reached Neptune, where it photographed the Great White Spot, discovered more unknown moons, and did a flyby of the largest moon, Triton, which was found to have a thin atmosphere and also be geologically active, perhaps also hiding a subterranean ocean, despite being nearly absolute zero. Voyager actually captured the geyser activity of Triton in its 1989 flyby. This marked the end of Voyager's planetary mission, and the last time a craft would be sent to Uranus and Neptune, which is really pretty sad, especially considering how interesting Triton and some of the other moons are. As I mentioned earlier, we followed up Voyager 1's exploration of Titan years later with the incredibly successful Cassini-Huygens mission, which did a lot of great science at Saturn, and even landed a probe on the moon. Juno is a spacecraft that is currently exploring Jupiter, and a Europa mission is planned for the 2020s called Europa Clipper but nothing yet for Enceladus or Triton. In 1990, Voyager 1 took a photograph of Earth from 6 billion miles away, the furthest picture of Earth we have to date. And in 2013, Voyager 1 officially reached the interstellar median. Voyager 1 is not headed towards anything in particular. Its closest approach, as far as we can tell, will be with the star Gliese 445, but it will still be more than a light year away from it, though it'll get there in a mere 40,000 years much quicker than either of the Pioneer probes will hit anything. Voyager 1 is actually still communicating with Earth, though we can't be sure how much longer it will last. Voyager 2 entered interstellar space in 2018 and is also still communicating with Earth and sending information about interstellar space. Like Voyager 1, it doesn't appear to be headed towards anything in particular, but in about 40,000 years it will come within two light years of the star Ross 248. Neither of those stars has any known planets, but if nothing smashes into the Voyager probes, they may well spend eternity traveling through the Milky Way. And even more so than the Pioneer missions before them, Voyager 1 and 2 are carrying humanity with them. Voyager 1 and 2 both carry a golden record, designed by a committee led by the late Carl Sagan, along with the player to actually play the record and drawings about how it works. The record contains pictures of some of Earth's most iconic landscapes and animals, as well as people like Jane Goodall with her chimpanzees, and more science-y anatomy pictures as well as music from Bach and Beethoven, a night chant by the Navajo Indians, and a song called Morning Star from the Aborigine people in Australia. There's a wide selection of sounds too, from waves to thunderstorms to crickets to frogs, and of course, there are greetings recorded in 55 different languages. It's kind of a shame the Voyagers aren't going to get closer to some celestial body. Could you imagine finding an equivalent thing here on Earth from somewhere light years away? The last and most recent of the interstellar wanderers is the New Horizons space probe that flew by Jupiter on its way to Pluto, where it became the first spacecraft to explore the dwarf planet. New Horizons was about the size of a grand piano, and has about a six-foot main antenna dish, quite a bit smaller than the other probes, but carrying even better cameras and modern instruments for solar wind, as well as an instrument to investigate the space dust that it encounters on its journey. New Horizons was launched in January 2006 
and crossed the path of Mars orbit just a few months later at a speed of 47,000 miles per hour, and in early 2007 made its closest approach to Jupiter, and after several weeks studying the planet, it accelerated to over 52,000 miles per hour and was on its way to Pluto. New Horizons reached Pluto in 2015 and took some really incredible pictures, and in my opinion, Pluto's right up there with Earth and Saturn as the most visually striking planets. Far from a mundane ice ball, Pluto has some color, massive spans of deep red that really pop out next to its white ice sheets. And despite being so far away from the sun, Pluto also appears to be active, and current research suggests that it might even harbor some kind of ocean beneath its surface. After Pluto, New Horizons headed into a region known as the Kuiper Belt that is sort of like a second asteroid belt full of icy bodies, and possibly even a planet X of sorts. The first target was an unusual body called Ultima Thule, that you can google and look at pictures of, taken by New Horizons. New Horizons reached and began studying the object in late 2018, and as of January 2019, is in the process of sending its results back to Earth, which may take up to some 20 months. Barring an unforeseen failure, New Horizons should remain active until around 2030 and continue to explore the Kuiper Belt before leaving the solar system sometime around 2040, depending on what happens next. New Horizons is moving fast enough to pass the Pioneer probes in distance sometime in the next 150 years, but it will never catch Voyager 1, which remains the fastest traveling man-made object to date. Though you must give New Horizons credit, as it did not get to also slingshot itself around both Jupiter and Saturn on its way. We don't yet know where New Horizons will end up, and it isn't carrying anything quite like the Pioneer plaque or the Voyager record, but once it's done doing science, there's a plan to upload information from Earth that will be sourced from the website oneearthmessage.org, where you can have a say in what goes into it. And that's it. Other than some random space junk, like the third stage of the New Horizons rocket, there's nothing intentionally leaving our own solar backyard. And even the phrase, own backyard, is debatable. Voyager 1 may still be within the influence of our sun, depending on how you define the boundary between our backyard and interstellar space. And even then, none of the probes is likely to reach any star with planets, much less a star with potentially habitable worlds. But then again, the point of these missions wasn't necessarily to be interstellar. They had planetary missions and were just lucky enough to continue beyond that. Which brings me to the Breakthrough Starshot project concepted by minds like the late Stephen Hawking and Harvard's A.B. Loeb of recent Oumuamua fame, and funded by people like Mark Zuckerberg. The project envisions a minuscule spacecraft, something the size of a microchip, flying through space at 20% the speed of light behind a light sail that is powered by an Earth-based laser and perhaps a minuscule propulsion system on board the craft itself. Starship, as it's called, would be destined for a nearby star like Proxima Centauri, that also happens to have a planet called Proxima b orbiting it, that may be within the habitable zone. The goal would be to reach the star in about 30 to 40 years after launch, and receive return communication in about 4 to 5 years after that. It's still a ways away, but in 2015, the Planetary Society, a great pro-space non-profit, flew a small light sail into space on an Atlas V rocket and successfully deployed it in space as a proof of concept. A second light sail just recently launched on top of a SpaceX Falcon Heavy. Light Sail 2 will attempt to demonstrate that the sail can be maneuvered in space. You can check that out at planetary.org for more info. It's crazy when you think about it. 
All this time we've had our eyes and ears glued to the sky, but we aren't really attempting to give E.T. a UFO of their own. It's frustrating, really. I'd love to fly a ship full of rubber dummies to an alien New Mexico and just record the reaction. But space is hard and expensive, and we don't quite yet seem to have the appetite in any society for the kinds of resources required for really deep space. Which makes you wonder about things like a muamua, which was probably just an unusual rock, but what if it was something alien? Was it their equivalent to a pioneer or voyager probe from thousands or millions of years ago that long since lost its purpose and was just forgotten? I think in regards to UFOs, this should also sign a light on how monumental a task spaceflight really is in all aspects, from finance to manufacturing to actually putting something in the sky and hoping it isn't obliterated by radiation, heat, cold, or micrometeors, or just the sheer distance and difficulty of maintaining contact and orientation. And that's before you consider UFOs reported on Earth that go the extra step of successfully navigating an alien atmosphere while we're still trying to not crash into whole moons and asteroids in the middle of nowhere. And consider this. Voyager 1, the furthest, fastest object we've ever built, is barely if 20 light hours away. And the nearest star is about 4 light years away, which is over 35,000 light hours. It makes me wonder and lament how different things might be if some variation of the nuclear-powered Orion rocket from the 1950s and 60s actually existed, or even the later Minimag Orion that could have traveled much faster and deeper than anything we've ever built. I think nuclear has to be an option at some point, but that's a topic for another episode. Next time you're up early or out late and look up at the stars, whether you're an aliens and UFOs person or not, just remember, we've only maybe sent four objects out there to wander the stars, with one more on the way to nowhere somewhere in the coming decades. And not one of them will be headed anywhere intentionally, and all of them are or will be dead long before they arrive at whatever fate is at the end of their journey. Blindly wandering the cosmos, where, best case scenario, they might be ETs of Muamua speeding through the system millions of years from now, with little chance to be observed and virtually no chance of being captured. Well, that's it for this episode. If you like the show, leave me a review, subscribe, and share it with your friends. You can also follow the Waiting In podcast on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. There will be links to those in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Music in this episode, in order of occurrence, Phantom from Space, Shadowlands Breath, and Soaring by Kevin McLeod and available at Incompetech.com. If you like lore and legends, consider supporting the show at buymeacoffee.com slash loreandlegends with a one-time gift that will cost less than a cup of coffee. You can also follow on Instagram, where my handle is at loreandlegends1, and on Twitter at loreandlegends3. You can also subscribe to the Lore and Legends YouTube channel, which features video versions of all your favorite episodes.
And of course, the official website, loreandlegends.net. Thanks for checking out Lauren Legends. See you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.